I have called up in all my years of sorcery Pseudopod. That's P-S-E-U-D-O-P-O-D dot org. Um, they do, I think it's mostly weekly, um, short story horror in audio form. It's fantastic stuff, and it's, it's a broad variety, so a bit of a warning on that. On April 26th, they're going to be doing Clark Ashton Smith's The Ninth Skeleton as an audio production. So we would like to encourage all of you to check them out because um, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm really looking forward to that. The Ninth Skeleton is not part of Hyperborea, but we'll be getting to it hopefully this summer. And we'll remind you then as well as put up a link to it then. So April 26th, keep an eye on Pseudopod. And if you like this podcast, you just might like them too. By the way, I love their, the warning on their, their site. Pseudopod is for mature audiences only. Hardly any story on Pseudopod is suitable for children. We mean this seriously. <laughs> <laughs> like most recent episode of The Suicide Witch. Whoa, they, a yeah. witch of suicides? I don't even know. That's pretty I cool. That one yet. But they have, let's see, death, graphic violence, explicit sex, hate crimes, blasphemy, and other themes which will hook your psyche. We do not rate. Nice. Are they, they, do they cover contemporary stuff as well as older stuff? I believe, yeah, I believe that they do. It's not, I believe that most of their stuff is actually more modern than. That's cool. Old. I love it. Uh, so the Ice Demon, I guess I will tell you guys that the story originally appeared in the April 1933 issue of Weird Tales. Uh, alongside stories by E. Hoffman Price, Jack Williamson, Mary Elizabeth Councilman, and a story called Tiger Dust by someone named Bassett Morgan, who is my hot pick for this, this <laughs> <laughs> issue of Weird Tales. is something I'm curious about knowing more about, but too lazy to do the Google research. I want to know more about Tiger Dust. Yeah, just in general, what do, you know? What does one get from Tiger Dust? I don't know. Yeah, I want to tie it all back to Avuzal Wethakwan. And all of those tiger references in his thing, oh, perhaps right. the something or other ground into tiger dust. I don't know. I just I'm also kind of into the idea of like if I were to ever get a basset hound to name it Basset Morgan, and then like other dog types, you might call it like Retriever Denver or something, so that you always name your dog the type of dog and then the name of the dog. That's amazing. <laughs> I I would support you naming a dog Basset. Yeah, Morgan. me too. Come hither, Basset Morgan. Basset Morgan, bring your tiger dust. <laughs> Smoke a pipe <laughs> down on other weird fiction writers when they don't get the reference. Dog wearing an ascot. <laughs> Your dog is an ascot. Uh, what? That was uncalled. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs>
We have a reader for this episode, and uh, we're actually going to start phasing in uh, more readers for our stories instead of just relying on our uh, less than stellar reading prowesses. But our reader for this episode, The Ice Demon, will be Joe Scalora, who read for us during uh, Door to Saturn and did such a great job. Love that guy. Yeah, he's great. Kwanga the Huntsman, with whom Phethos and Ipersanth, two of the most enterprising jewelers of Iqua, had crossed the borders of a region into which men went but seldom, and wherefrom they returned even more rarely. Traveling north from Iqua, they had passed into desolate Mu Thulan, where the great glacier of Polarion had rolled like a frozen sea upon wealthy and far-famed cities, covering the broad isthmus from shore to shore beneath fathoms of perpetual ice. The shell-shaped domes of Kerngoth, it was fabled, could still be seen deep down in the glaciation, and the high, keen spires of Ogunzai were embedded therein, together with firm palm and mammoth and the square black temples of the god Sathagwa. All this had occurred many centuries ago, and still the ice, a mighty, glittering rampart, was moving south upon deserted lands. Now, in the path of the embattled glacier, Kwanga led his companions on a bold quest. Their object was nothing less than the retrieval of the rubies of King Halor, who, with the wizard Omum Vog and many full caparisoned soldiers, had gone out five decades before to make war upon the polar ice. From this fantastic expedition, neither Halor nor Omum Vog had come back, and the sorry, ragged remnant of their men-at-arms, returning to Iqua after two moons, had told a dire tale. So this is the end of Hyperborea, the world, or the foreshadowing of the end of the Hyperborean yeah, age. Yeah, the Ice Age is upon them. It seems like Camorium would have to be part of the buried things. Last time we heard about Muthulan, it was a, it was a place, right, that right, people yeah. lived. Yeah, and like a jungle area more. Now it's covered with ice. I love the idea that the Ice Age and whatever it is that turned Greenland area, we'll say, from a beautiful lush land into what it is now is, well, it, it, it is a force that can be battled yeah. with. Yeah, I love going to war against the... Malignant entity. I find that fascinating, the personification of the forces of nature and change. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty interesting theme that runs throughout this, how... Well, we'll get into it, but is it is it nature? Is it supernatural? And what does it want? Because I have some questions about what it wants at the end, and it's a little bit confusing. So we have a huntsman and two jewelers going on an adventure. Yeah. So that's pretty unlikely. We should say, though, because that reading ends with, with them uh, saying they have a tale to tell. So what, yes. what is the dire tale that they tell? Well, they mentioned before they're going to retrieve the rubies of King Halor. The king and his court wizard, Amam Vog, and a whole regiment of soldiers went to go battle the ice. Uh, what was it, 50 years before Kwanga? Mm -hmm. Five decades before Kwanga and Hoom and Iber went on their little quest. These are some of my favorite names. Yeah. I love the name Amon Vogue. Me too. Like, it's almost as good as Bassett Morgan. In fact, <laughs> I wish Amon Vogue had Bassett Morgan with him on their fading journey. <laughs> Things might have turned out better. 
So anyway, they, they go up there and what happens? They go to where the ice is the thickest and Amumvog goes forth and casts a fireball. Like a sun. That's almost exactly what it is. He creates like a false sun on the earth to try to melt the ice and he holds it up there. But the the fire from this torrid and effulgent ball just melts the ice and it uh, it creates steam mm-hmm. or it just creates mm-hmm. a and, mist. And rivers. Yeah. Yeah, it melts into rivers and then it creates like a fog that blocks out its light and renders it null. And then snap. The cold closes in and all of the fog just crystallizes over the people. And so it's not just that the glacier has reformed the one that they were standing on, but because it was dispersed into the air, boom, they're stuck in it forever. The only reason we know about this is because some soldiers got spooked and they snuck out of camp and they saw this happen and they wandered back to civilization and told the world. And they actually, I mean, they, they teased the ending of the story, right? Because they, they, they determined that the glacier itself is a live malignant entity right of unknown bail mm-hmm. yeah that like left them let them go so he could warn everybody not to not to try to melt the glacier with a fake sun which is a pretty specific <laughs> yeah. warning i guess and i can't imagine there are that many people that can summon a, a false sun but who knows but it just seemed like not a bad plan you know it seems like an the awesome plan yeah. are you kidding i love it <laughs> like om um, vog the fact that we have a wizard actually doing like full on wizard stuff is pretty cool yeah yeah if, if ibon were here he would just like talk to the ibon <laughs> try to trick it into something <laughs> what a joke ibon <laughs> get stoned ibon whatever <laughs> But because they, well, because they failed so dramatically, none of the following kings or wizards thought that this was a good idea to take on the, uh, take on the glacier. And so they were just like, well, whatever. It's not here yet. We'll rule our little kingdom and stuff. They just sort of fled before. Yeah. Yeah. The glacier keeps moving south and people keep getting out of its way and moving to the warmer areas. This is what I'm going to say about this story. I, we can talk about it at the end again. I feel like this story is maybe a bit long-winded because now, like, that would be enough. Like, we could just go from this right. into the actual story. But there's, like, another setup story that yeah. happens now, which is about mm-hmm. how Illawak and Quanga like, decided where to go hunting for these jewels. Well, no, how... how oh, well, right, how they, Illawak found the jewels, and right. then his brother decided to hunt for them. Right, but but even this, like, I, I don't I don't know that I need this. But we can talk about it. I just feel like, if I were to edit this story, I would have been like, I don't care about you hunting a black fox through the glaciers. <laughs> like, it doesn't... Just say they knew where the expedition went, and they were going to go there, too. I don't know why we need all this. But maybe, feel free to disagree with me. I feel like... This is a little long-winded to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I disagree. I do kind of like the the air foreboding, but yeah, it's definitely... I, I, I don't think it's necessary either. Yeah, I don't know if it's necessary, but I do like... I like the idea of this, this hunter just happening to stumble yeah. yes, into a cave and, and seeing inside a cavern, but like through a wall, almost like an exhibit in an aquarium preserved in the ice, these king and wizard and the soldiers with them and he just freaks out and leaves 
and unfortunately, not too long after, is um, killed by a white bear on which he used all his arrows and pain. Yeah. Again, dun, dun, like, dun, uh, such red, it's such random digressions, this story. <laughs> like, Maybe it kind of plays into what happens at the end of the story, too. It, yes. That's yeah. what I think. I think that that should have been a warning to right. Kwanga. he's a modern man. Yeah, and he, he's not afraid of anybody. No. Sure, what he's interested is in the fact that his brother mentioned that, oh, yeah, they're still, you know, wearing the, all the jewels, and hey, they're dead, so. Kwanga, he now knows. He doesn't really seem to, to mourn his brother too much. It is kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> Kwanga knows that these jewels are there, and he is... He's trading in Iqua, and he goes to the jewelers, and he, because he, he usually trades with them. He's got a few garnets that he found in the Northern Valley, and he he mentions it, like, oh, I know where these rubies are, the jewels of King Halor, and they freak out, and they're like, if you can, if we can get those, we can make bank, we can make serious money off of these. So then they all agree, hey, let's go on an adventure. Even though the jewelers know that the rubies will be super hard to sell, and Kwanga asks for his part of the money kind of up front. As soon as they find the rubies, he wants his cash so he can get out of there. Which I kind of like his way of thinking, yeah. because something as big and messy as this, you just want your cash and you want to be gone. But first, they have to get to the rubies. And I love this idea of, of a hunter. Okay, cool. And two jewelers yeah. setting out. It's like... Worst D&D party setup ever. <laughs> like, all right, I'm a hunter. What are you guys? Oh, we're jewelers. If succeeded, though, that would be like, that would be great because it would be, you know, like the farthest character journey for them to become heroes, right? Yeah. It's not like they were yeah. even farmers. It's like they were just, spoiler alert, they, they don't succeed. So. What? <laughs> I was, I was going to save the end and just read it here. Now I don't even have to bother. <laughs> okay, so they set forth in midsummer because I guess they figure, yes. let's go when it's hot. They're like the Marines or something. Yeah. Like, the, the jeweler Navy Seals. <laughs> <laughs> There's some cool description about them traveling into the colder areas where um, it's kind of. Uh, snowy. There's whole fields of like poppy flowers and there's mm -hmm. rivers with white water lilies growing. I thought it was interesting that there's so much like flower life as it's starting to get colder and colder because usually flowers don't, they're usually the first to go. Yeah, and there's uh, a smoking volcano off in yes. the distance, which makes you wonder if like there's some sort of underground heat coming up. But, but while it's not actually covered by the glacier, it's certainly interacting yeah. with... I mean, the glacier certainly got the rest of the country. Side. Hold on. I, there's a couple of other small details in here before we finally get to the next reading that I just think are hilarious. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so they're traveling. Not only are they a terrible D&D &D party, but they hate each other. Yes. Like, yeah. they, and they hate Quanga. And then there's this crazy detail, which makes me think these guys are just morons, which is that they're carrying two huge bags of gold yeah. all the way to the glacier so that they can pay for the jewels, I guess, on the spot for, <laughs> for where they, when they find them, which just seems moronic to me. Like, like clearly, if you're going on that big of a journey, you wouldn't drag along the two huge bags of gold, right? I mean, unless... You were an idiot. I'm going to call that an idiot. <laughs> the customs of Hyperborea are strange to us. <laughs> strange and moronic. 
Maybe he was afraid that when he got back to, or on the way back, they would try to kill him. I mean, not that this is great, because obviously they would have to split up to avoid each other, or, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I just, a moronic. it sounds like they're really stupid and mistrustful of each other, so. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would just like to, like, if I were, I would never go on an expedition like this, ever. But <laughs> if I were to, I feel like, you know, there, there must be some like system of bartering or yeah. something like or pay him one pay him one bag of gold right. to take you up there and another after you like there's there's ways around what they're doing here yeah. and they haven't clearly haven't taken <laughs> also i like that he's carrying a short leaf shaped yeah which makes me say what 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 I mean, is it a, a long, thin leaf, a maple leaf? Oh, yeah. Um, I, pict- an oak? I picture it like Sting in the uh, Lord of the Rings movies. Ooh, pretty. I picture it like Sting in Dune. What? <laughs> <laughs> Almost fully nude. Yes. Ladam. Um, yeah, so he's carrying a sword, a pickaxe, a finely tempered bronze. A curious pickaxe, a finely tempered bronze. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it's so curious. <laughs> Maybe it needs the answer to some question, you know? Yes. <laughs> Maybe it's Sting. Whoa. What, guys, blow. guys, guys, guys. What if Sting played the Hobbit and Sting carried Sting? God, that's it. I quit the podcast. <laughs> you know. This is Phil. Uh, bye. <laughs> uh, so, so this group of, let's just be kind and call them adventurers. Yes. Uh, they finally make it. I actually don't even know what gets us into this next reading. It's like they sort of reach... That's why they're carrying the gold, is because Kwanga makes them tie the horses up so that they could climb over the ice and get to the cave, but they don't want to leave... They're not tying the horses up with the gold. You say that like it makes sense, but it still doesn't make sense. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to leave the gold there with the horses. In the middle of a dangerous glacier? (laughs) Well... If I'm dumb enough to have brought it that far, you're right, I'm not. But (laughs) (laughs) The scene before them was like some frozen world of the outer void. Vast, unbroken, save for a few scattered mounds and ridges, the plain extended to the white horizon and its armored peaks. Nothing seemed to live or move on the awful, glistening vistas whose nearer levels were swept clean of snow. The sun appeared to grow pale and chill and to recede behind the adventurers, and a wind blew upon them from the ice like a breath from abysses beyond the pole. Apart from the boreal desolation and dreariness, however, there was nothing to dismay Kwanga or his companions. None of them was superstitious, and they deemed that the old tales were idle myths, were no more than fear-born delusions. Kwanga smiled commiseratively at the thought of his brother Iluak, who had been so oddly frightened and had fancied such extraordinary things after the finding of Halor. It was a singular weakness in Iluak, the rash and almost foolhardy hunter who had feared neither man nor beast. As to the trapping of Halor and Omumvog and their army in the glacier, it was plain that they had allowed themselves to be overtaken by the winter storms, and the few survivors, mentally unhinged by their hardships, had told a wild story. Ice, even though it had conquered half of a continent, was merely ice, and its workings conformed invariably to certain natural laws. Iluak had said that the ice sheet was a great demon, cruel, greedy, and loth to give up that which it had taken. But such beliefs were crude and primitive superstitions, not to be entertained by enlightened minds of the Pleistocene age. 
<laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love ice was merely ice, and that they're the enlightened minds. Yeah. There's a, yeah, um, I think that's a great example of, like, the sense of humor of Hyperborean stories, yeah. right? But then again, to, to, like, remove it from the realm of fiction, they're also kind of right, because in reality, ice is just ice. Right. So there's, a, mm-hmm. there's something to think about. So one of the things that I noticed in this reading, which obviously uh, is foreshadowing for later on, is that the ice is, well, it's, the demon is cruel, greedy, and loath to give up that which has yeah. taken which is kind of important because uh, otherwise I wouldn't necessarily see a reason for the ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. When was the uh, Pleistocene Age? Um, the Pleistocene Age is a geological epoch which lasted from about 25 million years ago till 11,000 years ago, spanning the world's recent period of repeated glaciations. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's kind of cool that 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 is there, just because it. I mean, that's a huge range of dates, but it does yeah. kind of yeah. date, like it, it's like a, a specific date for when Hyperborea was Hyperborea, right? right. Or not a range of dates, shall we say? And it also kind of puts it in our world. Oh yeah, know, for this, sure. is the, mm-hmm. this is the first time that he's really saying, "Oh yeah, this is this happened in our past." And if you look at, um, and I'm sorry, that was a quote from Wikipedia, which we all know is so. Right. In the past. I trust it more on this topic than on like Weird Tales publication right. dates, though. And there's a beautiful um, illustration of the extent of glacial ice in the North Polar area during this period, and it totally covers Greenland and Iceland and most of Canada and down like past Chicago, and then down into mostly mostly the USSR on the other side. Well, I guess that's an older map, so Russia and such, but the Soviet countries. Kwong is no dummy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. He knows what's up here. And they're going to reach the cavern by noon. That's great. They travel for like three hours, and then they find it. They find the cave. They find the ice tomb of King Halor and Amonvog and all of their ranks of soldiers frozen in this rampart of ice. And there's lots of icicles in here, perhaps because it's summer. In fact, the whole entrance is like a fanged maw. That's not ominous in the slightest. <laughs> oh no, no! In fact, um, yeah, they well, they well, just kind of walk in, right? Like, roll to walk into the chamber, Tim. <laughs> I'm sorry, no, you're right. They they walk, but they walk deeply down at a, a slippery downward angle for over a hundred feet, and it's somehow still kind of transparent, and they can see the embedded shapes of the men and the king, yeah, and the wizard, and they can see the reflection of the. Uh, the jewels. And then Kwanga whips out his pickaxe <laughs> and starts hammering away, trying to get those jewels. And the jewelers are happy. He really wishes that he'd, um, that he'd asked for more because he's looking at them and they're definitely worth a lot. There's beautiful, beautiful rubies. But you know what? He's, he's okay with it. He'll get them lots of wine and dancing women and gambling, which is what he cares about. <laughs> oh, I was going to ask you guys just... To try, I have an easy time imagining the opening to this space and their journey down this hundred foot slope. But what do you think this space that they're in looks like? Like, is it is it is it big in, in like a cavern, or is it like cramped and they can see what they want, like buried deep in the ice, or like what? 
I, th- I think it's big and in some weird way there's uh, there seems to be a light source and so I see it almost as like light blue clear ice that almost looks like aquarium water. I see this as a frozen aquarium situation. Okay. But how big do you think the space they're standing? Is it like like 10 foot by 10 foot that they can stand in it or is it like a big room and they can see what they want behind the ice? I think it's I would say pretty so. big. Like they can all yeah. stand a good distance away from each other. Right, okay. So we'll say maybe like 40 by 40. You see a 40 by 40 ice cavern. <laughs> <laughs> Various icicles hang from above. Drip, drip, drip. What do you do? (laughs) Answer. Pull out my... Curious bronze pickaxe. That one. (laughs) Give it some answer. (laughs) Yep, then I carefully knock in, leave a thin shell around the body, and then pry it off with great care to make sure that um, none of the gems are damaged, and then I use my curiously leaf-shaped sword, actually not curious, just leaf-shaped, to cut off the fine silver wires that attach everything cunningly to his raiment. And I kept going just in case. The last ruby had been secured, and Kwanga was about to turn his attention to the lesser jewels that adorn the king's garments and curious patterns and signs of astrological or hieratic significance. Then, amid their preoccupation, he and whom Phethos were startled by a loud and splintering crash that ended with myriad tinklings as of broken glass. Turning, they saw that a huge icicle had fallen from the cavern dome, and its point, as if aimed unerringly, had cloven the skull of Ibersanth, who lay amid the debris of shattered ice with the sharp end of the fragment deeply embedded in his oozing brain. He had died instantly without knowledge of his doom. The accident, it seemed, was a perfectly natural one, such as might occur in summer from a slight melting of the immense pendant. But amid their consternation, Kwanga and Humphethos were compelled to take note of certain circumstances that were far from normal or explicable. During the removal of the rubies, on which their attention had been centered so exclusively, the chamber had narrowed to half of its former width, and had also closed down from above, till the hanging icicles were almost upon them, like the champing teeth of some tremendous mouth. The place had darkened, and the light was such as might filter into arctic seas beneath heavy flows. The incline of the cave had grown steeper, as if it were pitching into bottomless depths. Far up, incredibly far, the two men beheld the tiny entrance, which seemed no bigger than the mouth of a fox's hole. And this, to me, is when the story gets awesome. Yeah. Like, all it yeah. takes to get me into it is a little bit of gore. You know? <laughs> Just a little brains on the ice. <laughs> That's it. That's insane. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, it becomes like a time, timed quest in like a video game or even something where the DM is rolling to say, okay, you run and it goes and you run and it goes. And... Yeah. So there's so much happening here. Uh, an icicle falls and kills their buddy. They... The cavern's gotten smaller, which is why I think it was kind of big 
in the first place Mm -hmm. still because now it's noticeably smaller Mm -hmm. and uh it's the hole is as big as a fox's hole which leads us back to um Iluak who chased the fox into the hole and then it disappeared. I don't know if we mentioned that. Yeah, the fox never showed up, so don't know what was up with that. Kind of freaky. <laughs> um, Probably a coincidence, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ice is ice. <laughs> Just ice. Ice is ice. And these, ice. these icicles. The Tim Mucci story. Closing. <laughs> like a mouth around them. No big deal. Not like teeth, really. Yeah. <laughs> so they they start scrambling their way up this, and it was about 100 feet long when they came down. I don't. It doesn't really say how far it is, but as they're doing it, the ice is, is getting even yeah, closer. Yeah, and they forget a bag of gold because uh, Ibert Santh was holding it. Whom Fithos has the, uh, the pouch of rubies, and he's trying to protect it. And Kwanga has, um, I think he has the other sack of gold. And so they're just running and trying to protect their jewels and at the same time get out. Very action movie. Yeah. Not always the brightest. Maybe, maybe if we're going like, to cast this movie, maybe I'm just going to go ahead and cast Sylvester Stallone as Kwanga. <laughs> maybe this is Cliffhanger 2. I'm just saying. <laughs> think I, about s- it. I see him more as a Sean Bean type, considering how it ends. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what do we say to the god of death? Take Sean Bean instead. So they're crawling through this hole of ice as it's closing in on them. And uh, is he reaches the, the hole and he's pulling himself out, but then he gets stuck. And he f- starts to freak out and then he remembers, oh, wait, I have my bow and my quiver on my back and that's stopping me. So he takes it off and he throws him out the hole and then he climbs free. So he's scrambled out. But I have a question on word usage. Mm-hmm. It, there's this yes. sentence, after an ascent that was frighteningly prolonged, like the effort to escape from some delirious, tedious, nightmare predicament, is there some other word, some other meaning to the word tedious that is exciting instead of boring? I don't know. I don't think so. I, it certainly doesn't sound I tedious. Think it's, I think it's like in, the, in those nightmares where you keep having to do the same thing over and over again and you're trying to get away. So repetitive, uh, okay. but scary repetitive. Not, not like, like what, boring. No, not like, blah, 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 but like, oh my god, why does the hole never get any closer? I am running as fast as I can. Rising to his feet on the open glacier, he heard a wild cry from Umphethos, who, trying to follow Kwanga, had become tightly wedged in the entrance through his greater girth. His right hand, clutching the pouch of rubies, was thrust forward beyond the threshold of the cave. He howled incessantly, with half-coherent protestations that the cruel ice-teeth were crunching him to death. In spite of the eerie terrors that unmanned him, the hunter still retained enough courage to go back and try to assist Humphethos. He was about to assail the huge icicles with his pick when he heard an agonizing scream from the jeweler, followed by a harsh and indescribable grating. There had been no visible movement of the fangs, and yet Kwanga now saw that they had reached the cavern floor. The body of Humphethos, pierced through and through by one of the icicles and ground down by the blunter teeth, was spurting blood on the glacier, like the red mist from a wine press. A, that's awesome. Yeah. But this is such a weird story because, like, okay, Clark Ashton Smith, right? He's not going to shy away from the gore, but, yeah. like, this is explicit yeah. gore like we haven't seen before. No. I kind of no. love yeah. this story for it, but, like, that in particular is such a nasty 
nasty. Both of these deaths are just nasty. Like it's just, we got oozing brains and spurting well, blood. This is almost like a monster though, that was chewing on an ear. So we had that too. I envision it like that, like that part in Army of Darkness when the, the pit just vomits up blood. Yes. That's what happens. In the, like oh. <laughs> it's just so so over the top. Not complaining, just saying. Like the red mist from a wine press is. is yeah. <laughs> Cinematic. Do you think this is the first? Because I'm obsessed with these stupid questions like the first time that they happen <laughs> in literature. This one's very particular. Do you think this is the first blood mist? <laughs> I can't blood imagine. Mist, um, it's a very, well, blood, blood mist, like to me, I remember the first time that a movie did blood not as a liquid, but as like a spray. Right. And I'm just wondering, like. I it must know. be an early one, right? Because I can't say I've encountered it before. So. Yeah. Because you have so to the, figure. And therefore, to the Wikipedia page, <laughs> I'm sure there were the like because there were tons of like action pulps, you know, with uh, this people just firing guns into into each other's faces. I'm sure. Tim, here on the Double Shadow, we make the rules. Okay. Say, this is the first use of blood <laughs> Okay, done. What if Sting played Bilbo Baggins and he used Sting? Why are you... Don't, don't quote my brilliant ideas back at me. <laughs> I quit this podcast again. Oh, man. Oh. So, Kwanga's response, of course, is to be feel a little bit. Wait, bad. one more interruption. Our first, um, in a, <laughs> our first wine pressing for our brewery will be called <laughs> "Spurting Blood on the Glacier." No, it should be called Humfitos. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's better. So, Kwanga's response first is to feel a little bit mad, like what? What just happened? Um, because Fangs, really, he can't have seen that. However, his second response is, well, there's some rubies. <laughs> Yoink. And he's dead beyond all earthly help. So, you know, Hold on. couldn't have stayed. I just want to point out the term. He had an impulse of terror mingled greed. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm scared, but I'm greedy. I'm yeah. scared, but I'm really actually more greedy. He hoofs it and he notices that everything's different. The outside world is almost completely changed the the glacier that they climbed in on now slopes way up insanely tilted slope above and that the sun looks farther and smaller now it's almost like he's stepped into a different world this part's really yeah. weird actually yeah I, I love this part yeah. i love that this this phrase that he feels that creation itself had gone mad yeah because it suddenly, yeah, it turns very, like, you know, again, like, always flipping from genre to genre. like, goes from adventure story to, like, a gruesome horror story. And then to this, which I can only really call kind of surrealist in some ways. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. it doesn't, it suddenly just everything is mm -hmm. wacky. Yeah, because he's climbing up the slope and he turns to look behind him. And there's, like, a mirror image of the slope behind him with another sun up in the sky. Just strange. Unless he's actually seeing a reflection. Is he seeing a reflection? Possibly, but which one's the reflection? Yeah, I don't know. We have to remember, they went in around noon, so maybe this is an hour or two later, but this is still not late yeah. in the day, especially since it's summer. In the confusion of that strange bouleversement, he seemed to lose the last remnant of equilibrium, and the glacier reeled and pitched about him like an overturning world as he strove to recover the sense of direction had never before deserted him. Everywhere, it appeared, there were small and wan 
parhelia that mocked him above unending glacial scarps. He resumed his hopeless climb through a topsy-turvy world of illusion. Whether north, south, east, or west, he could not tell. A sudden wind swept downward on the glacier. It shrieked in Kwanga's ears like the myriad of voices of taunting devils. It moaned and laughed and ululated with shrill notes as of crackling ice. It seemed to pluck at Kwanga with live, malicious fingers, to suck the breath for which he had fought agonizingly. In spite of his heavy raiment and the speed of his toilsome ascent, he felt its bitter, mordant teeth searching and biting even to the marrow. Dimly, as he continued to climb upward, he saw that the ice was no longer smooth, but had risen into pillars and pyramids around him, or was fretted obscenely into wilder shapes. Immense, malignant profiles leered in blue-green crystal. The malformed heads of bestial devils frowned, and rearing dragons writhed immovably along the scarp, or sank frozen into deep crevasses. Apart from these imaginary forms that were assumed by the ice itself, Kwanga saw, or believed that he saw, human bodies and faces embedded in the glacier. Pale hands appeared to reach dimly and imploringly toward him from the depths, and he felt upon him the frost-bound eyes of men who had been lost in former years, and beheld their sunken limbs, grown rigid in strange attitudes of torture. That was kind of a long reading. That's my fault, but I just love it because it it does it, it just turns so weird. Like, what does that mean that he saw? Hold on, let me just let me just find the phrase. Well, first of all, I love the word scarp. <laughs> what does it mean, Tim? I don't know. <laughs> let me look it up. Yeah, look at why don't we why don't we give that a look up? I know in my head it's like a cliff or something, right? It's a cliff. Oh wait, yeah, it's like yeah, a, yeah. There you go. What a scarper. <laughs> It's like a scrapper, but a little bit different. <laughs> Just misspelled. <laughs> oh, when when the ice suddenly just becomes a multitude of monsters, like like there are the uh-huh. malformed heads of bestial devils, and there are rearing dragons, and then there are these bodies that are like all twisted in these nasty attitudes of torture, which uh-huh. are uh, one could assume are just an an ice age's worth of people who have died on the ice or do you think right. specifically Halor and and the others I think they're all the all the people who have been killed by the by the ice I agree there you go <laughs> All right I guess solve that uh, mystery <laughs> one mystery down I guess <laughs> What and what is this is this really the word beluver cement I don't know <laughs> Well let's find out We gave scarp the time of day let's we give let's give this word a th- Oh it means a violent uproar, a tumult, a reversal. Uh, so a perihelia is a term that means like a, they call them sun dogs. It's an atmospheric effect that creates a super bright spot of light in the sky. They also are also called mock suns or phantom suns. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so Kwanga, no longer capable of thought, he's just terrified beyond sense just keeps moving on. But the question is, is what he's seeing real, or is it in his brain, or is it a little of both? Because in an ordinary story, we'd say, oh yeah, he's having hallucinations, but is he? I don't know. I'm going to say no, because... I I kind of vote with no as well. But at the point when I was reading this, I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe... Maybe he is just, like, 
out of his mind with terror. Maybe all of this has a natural explanation. But then he um he reaches the end of the rampart and he yep. sees the grassy lands of the Hyperborean valleys below. He seems like he's safe. Yeah, he's safe. He sees green. He's on green. Yeah. It's it's good. Once you get onto green fields, you're going to yeah. be okay. And what's his first impulse? To, oh, probably to go back to the city, right? To go back and <laughs> and be safe among people. I don't think so. Oh. No, he heads, he heads to the volcanoes because... I'll see, I kind of get that. Yeah. Well, tell me why this makes sense. I'm not saying it doesn't, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just curious. Because when you're trying to escape from something that's made of ice... You want to be somewhere that's made of fire. Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> what? This, I guess I guess it's all a question of the vicinity. Like, if, if these volcanoes mm-hmm. are on the edge of that, right. that glacier, I probably wouldn't go there. No, me neither. Yeah, maybe not, but I, I, I do understand the impulse. And he's heard about, like, the, uh, what are they called? Spas? What are they called? Oh, hot springs? Yeah. Hot springs. Yeah, he's heard about hot springs up by the volcanoes, and he figures he'll go into one of those, and this way he won't freeze or be frozen. <laughs> or he's like, he instantly, I need a vacation. Yes. Right now. <laughs> this was hard work. Mm-hmm. Oh, but hot also, um, the horses are gone, so it's a good thing they didn't leave those bags of gold that got eaten. Yeah, yeah, I guess the joke's on me. So he's still got his pick. He's still got his bow. He's got the jewels. And he's suddenly really thirsty. And he he thinks that he might actually escape. And then suddenly he he has to pause in a shallow valley and drink from a bordered blossom spring and um, decides to rest in the blood red poppies that were purple with twilight. And then he falls asleep. You know what the thing about the story is that it's long-winded on the front, and this, I have to say, is also long-winded on the back. You know, like, why, I I feel like this could be wrapped up, this whole story could have been wrapped up. Like, not that these these details aren't fun, but I feel like Mm -hmm. the story kind of gets lost. It has a little bit of pacing problem. Yeah, I I agree. I kind of, as soon as he mentioned that he was going to go to the volcanoes, I'm like, what, why? (laughs) Yeah. The story isn't called The Volcano Demon. No. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he he sleeps and he has these horrible dreams, uh, and then he wakes up and uh, he's sweating and he's shivering and he's all scared. And then he sees a huge shadow come across the sky. And then he runs away again. He doesn't run away initially. He shoots his he shoots all of his arrows at it to try to stop it, which kind of mirrors what his brother did when he when he shot all of his arrows at the bear before yeah. he was found dead. Yep. But then he, he finds the strength in himself and gets up and starts to run. All at once, the air darkened before him with a sourceless blue-green glimmering in its depths. For a moment, he saw the featureless shadow that rose gigantically upon his path and obscured the very stars in the glare of the volcanoes. Then, with the swirling of a tempest-driven vapor, it closed about him, gelid and relentless. It was like phantom ice, a thing that blinded his eyes and stifled his breath, as if he were buried in some glacial tomb. It was cold with a transarctic rigor, such as he had never known, that ached unbearably in all his flesh, and was followed by a swiftly spreading numbness. Dimly he heard a sound as of clashing icicles, a grinding as of heavy flows in the blue-green gloom that tightened and thickened around him. 
It was as if the soul of the glacier, malign and implacable, had overtaken him in his flight. At times he struggled numbly in half-drowsy terror. With some obscure impulse, as if to propitiate a vengeful deity, he took the pouch of rubies from his bosom with prolonged and painful effort and tried to hurl it away. The thongs that tied the pouch were loosened by its fall, and Kwanga heard faintly, as if from a great distance, the tinkle of the rubies as they rolled and scattered on some hard surface. Then oblivion deepened about him, and he fell forward stiffly, without knowing that he had fallen. Morning found him beside a little stream, stark frozen, and lying on his face in a circle of poppies that had been blackened as if by the footprint of some gigantic demon of frost. A nearby pool, formed by the leisurely rill, was covered with thin ice, and on the ice, like gouts of frozen blood, there lay the scattered rubies of Halor. In its own time, the great glacier, moving slowly and irresistibly southward, would reclaim them. Phantomize! <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of cool things in this last part uh, as well, which kind of, I guess, begs maybe the most important question of the story, which is, what is this thing? Like, is it a smaller spirit that inhabits the glacier? Is it the glacier itself? I think it's the whole glacier. But but I actually think that that's just like a spawn of it. I see it more as a great overarching thing. I have the Black Book of Clark Ashton Smith, and I think all of the little notes here are also on the Eldritch Dark, but I have the notes for his for this story in here. Maybe that'll help us figure out what this thing is. Huanga, the huntsman, and two merchants of Muthulan, seeking the lost treasure of a king who had fled from the north before the glacial ice and had perished with his retainers in an outland region, enter the realms of eternal ice and snow during the summer season. They find the cave in which the treasure is hidden, together with the preserved bodies of the king and his followers, but departing with their loot, they are followed by an invisible icy presence. One of the merchants is found frozen to death on the morning after their first stop. Later, the second perishes in like fashion, and Kwanga, fleeing into a warm, semi-tropic volcanic valley, is also overtaken and perishes, dies of cold. The thing manifests itself as a sort of spiral wind or gust, enfolding the victims from head to foot. A sort of kind of sub-auditory whispering is also connected with its presence. So some differences there. Yeah, I think there are some huge differences there. Yeah. He obviously intended it to be like a creature, yeah. like a vengeful mm-hmm. creature, but I think it's so much cooler that it's kind of turns out to be the Ice Age. Uh, yeah. And notably, notable too, it starts out of as a, as a much less violent story. Yeah. I mean, it's not like his notes said, blood, 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 brains. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's a cool story. I, again, like I have a certain issues with its construction, but it's a cool story just because it, it has a kind of like metaphoric strength. We're witnessing the thing that's going to end Hyperborea. Yeah. Um, that's kind of cool. Yeah, and I found it fascinating that I mean I know that it, we've had the, we had the foreshadowing for it, but the idea of the the ice glacier demon coming to claim what had been taken yeah. away from it, even if that was just rupees, freaky. It's definitely greedy. Do you think that? Do you think you could read the story and interpret it to mean that if people hadn't kept going and trying to take what was its 
the Ice Age would not have covered Hyperborea? Like, do you think that the last nope. the last inch of Hyperborea was covered because some asshole took these rules and stepped <laughs> off the glacier, and then the glacier just moved nope. forward to take him back? No. I, I, I shake my head at this. The glacier was coming. Yeah, I agree. You just can't fight it. Moral of the yeah. story. When well, the moral for me is always listen to your more superstitious brother. <laughs> But I, I like. I also have to disagree that that bear thing is necessary at all. It feels totally random to me. Like because he didn't take anything, right? The brother, superstitious brother. No. Yeah, but and maybe he just, just dies fighting some bear. Like, but just knowing. Maybe about just it? yeah. Maybe, maybe just no. Stepping no, I'm in. sorry. No, that, oh, those are not. That is not maybe the rule of this monster. It is not just knowing about it because he lets those other guys go. Well, the rule of this monster is you take the gold. It comes for you, right? They you died the in very similar fashions, shooting all their arrows and then getting killed by something. Did they? Maybe it was. I think it was because he told his brother. Yeah, uh, Iliwak. It's Wait, like, see. tell, tell them where. Yeah, he was killed. He shot all his arrows and then was killed by a white bear. Right, but the other ones, the ones that escaped from the original. Oh, them? Yeah. Oh, that's, but they that's true. they weren't actually there yeah. at the time. The soldiers, happened. you mean? They, they, had, they, had, they had, were watching from a distance. I don't know. I, I, so. I think that that bear thing is a totally ridiculous thing. <laughs> and I don't know what it has to do with it. Like, that's where I think I would cut the story. If we're going to, like, if I'm going to wield the red pen, he doesn't need to have had a brother. He could have just found out where it is and then come back and put this expedition together. I don't know why we need this brother character at if all. If you did that, we would find you frozen to death in your basement. <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't, though, because I, I wouldn't have taken anything from the ice demon. You took a whole paragraph from. It. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I'm willing to give it back. I just don't want it to be in there. <laughs> like, we can all know that it exists. Yeah, there is some there is some fat in the story that it would probably be stronger if that was trimmed. But, you know, what can you do? And maybe that's why the first people didn't accept it. But Wright took it, so. It's a fun little tale. Yep. Definitely, like you were saying, the, the goriest that yeah. we've come across. Mm -hmm. Explicitly gorious. And one of the most interesting, I think, just for showing, for giving us a big picture yeah. of what's going on in Hyperborea. It's a, I think it's a weird story in the Hyperborea cycle just because it feels so much more primitive than, than mm -hmm. the other stories. Hunters and jewelers. Well, it, you wonder maybe if Hyperborea is regressing a bit yeah. as its cities are being swallowed. True. Is it going backward? So thanks to our reader, Joe Scalora. Don't forget to check out The Ninth Skeleton at Pseudopod on April 26th. And next time, we'll be doing Ubo Sothla. <laughs> That's how I picture Ubo Sothla laughing. <laughs> I think uh, just on one Ubo Sothla note, if, if listeners call their minds way, way back to, I think, like the first episode we did, I said I had this quote that he said about his own work that I couldn't find in that episode. It was about, I think it was about Ubo Sothla. So next week, I will give you that quote. Wow. Dreams are coming <laughs> true, guys. That's right. All those things that we seeded back in the first episode are now coming to fruition. We had a plan. We actually tightly script every episode. <laughs> What? Megalotherium? Is that the giant, like, sloth thing?
Yeah, I'm a sucker for Megalotherium, <laughs> mostly because of Laird Baron. Most women are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> 